to be Revelation night um, next week, right, Lord willing, Greg? Uh, Revelation starting. Yeah. All right, that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be fantastic. But I appreciate. Wow, that reminds me of Daniel in Revelation class. I in Bible college it was a ten weeker because we were on the corners, and we were seven weeks in Daniel. And I wanted to say, wait a second, I took this to study Revelation. We had three weeks left, and then I got a C on the Revelation test because I couldn't remember what. The churches did in chapter two and three, so uh, probably a good thing we didn't get there earlier. Otherwise, I'd probably be taking that thing over again in the summer. Um, boy, this is uh, exciting today in Romans six. We're so grateful to have our guest lecturer Tyler Williams back, uh, mostly from California and sometimes from Watkinsville, and very grateful um, for for you and Victoria and Victoria and so. Good to have y'all home, and and uh, we're very grateful for uh, this chance to feast on the word. Um, Josh, what have you seen before you read the passage for us? Your friend uh, Tyler, just the growth. Could you just give a a brief comment there on? Uh, you've had a long friendship. Yeah, I, you know, it's been fun for me just to see your ability to teach the text but to do it in a very precise very concise way but you know reading your notes last week it was just as helpful if not more helpful for me than the commentaries you know from the Romans guys so um, I've just seen your love for the text grow your appreciation of it and your desire not just to store it up for your own sake but that other people would be shepherded by God's word and be taught by it and, and learn from it so um and that's probably just for starters yeah no absolutely yeah look for uh moo shriner williams and macarthur is uh in the coming up days for commentators um for sure well good josh if you would read uh one to 14 for us we covered one to seven last week and uh really looking at eight to 14 um, this week, a little bit down the same line with uh, a few more imperatives. And um, if you'd read that and pray for us, then um, uh, Tyler has a nugget from verse 7 that we'll start with. Sure. So starting in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up the book of Romans and to examine what you have revealed in your scripture. I pray that our teaching would be clear and that this passage would convict us all and help us and encourage us in our fight against sin, but also to help us understand who we are and how we should think of ourselves and um, consider ourselves dead to sin. So, Lord, I pray that you'll be with us today. And I ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Mm, amen. <clears throat> Tyler, you had a, a note from seven that I thought was really helpful and, and uh, may get us going here today. Yeah, so just looking back at verse seven, I think this is uh, a pretty important uh, nuance to bring out. Um, so the text reads, For 
he who has died is freed from sin. And so if you notice, most of your translations will have a little footnote there. And if you look in your reference section, uh, it should say either acquitted or justified. The reason for this is this is the same term dikaio, which is which you've seen throughout Romans so far, meaning it is justified. So most translations translated as freed because of the context that chapter six is we're free from the power of sin. You see that at the beginning of verse six, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And then you start seeing in verse 18, verse 20, and verse 22, um, and having been freed from sin, um, verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, in verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. A lot of commentators, specifically Schreiner, will argue that this term is essentially synonymous, which is why it's translated freed. Um, I'm not as persuaded that it's a synonym with the term that is found in verses 18, 20, and 22. The reason for this is if Paul wanted to say freed regarding that sense of liberation or removed from the control of, he would have used the same term consistently. However, we see that he uses dikao here, and I think that's an anchor point to draw your mind back to the theology and the truths and the riches that he's presented from chapters 1 all the way through chapter 5. Essentially, what Paul is doing is he's anchoring in your sanctification into justification, meaning if you are not justified from sin, you cannot be liberated from sin. You cannot be set free from the power of sin. That freedom only comes to those who have been justified in Christ from the penalty of sin. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here in verse 7, which really starts to set you up for understanding all the uh, imperatives that are going to follow from verses 11 through verses 23. That's great. Grant, you said that MacArthur had helped that in um, kind of laying out a little bit of an outline. Is yeah. that something you could uh, explain before Tyler uh, put some meat on those bones? Yeah, absolutely. So this section I was having a little bit of trouble connecting with, maybe through the commentators. It's rich theologically, but I just couldn't quite for some reason connect with it until I tried to put my Scott McAndrew hat on and say like how can I apply this what would this look like if I actually lived this out faithfully every single day stuff like that but it wasn't until MacArthur gave this outline that I felt like it was starting to click and his um, outline is basically his translation was a little different I think this was back in the 80s when he did this sermon so it was KJV back then but um, he used three terms to divide up this section that we're looking at today into knowing, reckoning, or and yielding. Um, and today in our translation, you could say it's uh, knowing or considering or presenting. Uh, presenting being the yield and considering being the reckoning. Um, and he gets that from knowing being used in verse 3. Uh, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then know is used again in Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then again, he uses it in verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So the word know is used three times and is so important if we're going to understand how to live um, the Christian life, we must know things. We have to know what God's word says. And that's what MacArthur was getting at is, uh, it starts with the base knowledge is where it starts. We have to know what is required of, of, of us, what God says, 
Um, there's no innocence in not knowing what is required of us. I think he went back to Hosea, where um, that Israel just did not know. That was one of the indictments against Israel is they didn't know. Um, and then the second one would be reckoning or considering, coming from verse 11, which is, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the first term would be starting in the mind with just knowledge of what God's word said, and then the second would be considering, which would be, I forget the term you use, but in my mind, it's knowledge applied uh, in your heart, in your affection. Um, the, the stuff that you're thinking of, that you know of, um, you're considering it about yourself. You're applying it to yourself in your mind with your affections. Considering ourselves dead to sin means, I think, literally reckoning that I'm dead to sin, actively doing that in my mind to change how I live. And then the third one he calls yielding or presenting would be do not present your members to sin as instruments of, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So this, he said, would be directly applied to the will, our actions, what we do. So we start with knowledge. We start with that knowledge applied in our affections, and then that flows out into action, presenting ourselves towards righteousness, towards God in a correct manner. So that was really helpful for me. Yeah, no, that's good. Tyler, last week you helped us with the indicatives are before the imperatives with mm-hmm. Paul. It's interesting. Papa could give us a, a lecture on this, but in chapter 8, it's got that same thing again. It's what you know is really important. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are worth are not worth comparing. I love 38, for I am sure. So what we're learning here is we need to really, and this is what uh, I learned from Grant, um, even in the text and with Tyler, is the idea here that what we know is going to be vital that we can then apply. And so justification and all that we've learned so far in these first five chapters of Romans now are becoming so applicable to sanctification. Tyler, can you kind of help us now? What we saw 1 to 7, take us through um, a little bit of 8 and 9 here as we get. Yeah. So I'll reread 8 and 9. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Um, If you look back at verse 8, you see what we have is the last two of five what's called sin compounds, or sin compounds, S-Y-N. We see one in verse 4, that we are buried with Christ. Another in verse 5, that we became united with him. Verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, we have have died with him, with Christ, and we will believe that we shall also live with him. So again, this is so important, going back to what Grant had just mentioned about our knowing. Knowing that we are so united with Christ that we, our death, was in his death in that we were crucified with him we were united with him we died with him and then because of those realities we will ultimately live with him and this really and i think we touched on this last week this goes back to chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 this is the concept of corporate solidarity or federal headship what's true of one is true of his people Uh, we see this with david as a king of israel what where he fails it's essentially saying israel fails which is why christ is such a phenomenal representative for us is because Adam, the um, individual that Paul draws attention to at the end of chapter 5, 
Adam's sin essentially plunges the entire human race into sin, whereas one man, Christ, his obedience is applied to his people. And so we see that building with those five sin compounds throughout five verses four through eight. And I think that's really important, again, to know that our future living with him, our future resurrection, is bound up in the fact that we are united with him. And that should give us great motivation to work through the imperatives that are to come in verses 11 through 23. But verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, no longer will die, for death no longer is Lord over him. So Christ's death and his resurrection is so guaranteed that Christ is never to die again. His death was a once death. It was a once for all death. He died to sin once and for all, verse 10. And his life he ever lives to live for God in verse 10. Um, anything else from you guys? What you got from the yellow sheet there for us, Josh? Yeah, I, I don't want to back us up too far, but I was really helped by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this section once again. But to your earlier point, I think this section is so rich because Paul does kind of make the hinge to application. And we've gotten all this great doctrine, and I think we realize and see and are reminded that doctrine is for application to our lives. This isn't just an intellectual exercise where we're trying to you know, come to an academic understanding of the text, but it really has bearing for how we live. And this, you know, that we'll get into, I think has a lot to say about our battle against sin and how we're supposed to go about it and attack sin and how we're supposed to think through with our minds who we are in relation to that sin. So um, I know I missed it on both sides before, just studying the Bible for intellectual reasons but on the flip side it's 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 not just a self-help manual either we need the doctrine to really undergird our practice and how we're to walk in obedience and um you see just this section the beautiful balance of that i think yeah we probably haven't talked about it often enough since chapter one but look in your bible at how many times he starts the sentences or the the verses with four verse five verse seven now, verse 8, 4, verse 10. So, um, Tyler, can you help us with, and, and you have already, but Paul's always very linear here in Romans, isn't he, in his adding to the argument. Yeah, absolutely. Paul is always really consistent, especially in Romans, I think, probably, at least to me, it feels more in Romans than me any too. other book, yep. that he's really building his argument. If you want to understand what one verse means, you just need to look back at how it connects to the previous verse and how it's going to build on in the following verse. And you see that with those connecting words like for, therefore, now, even so, constantly building that argument to where there's no wiggle room in understanding how theology is so rich in how that should follow through in our lives and how we live each day. Don't you think in Romans here, as we're studying this, it will be important for us to, to make those connections or to continue to go back to try to follow that. And, and Grant and Josh, we need to do that the rest of the time here too, I think, is to keep adding to that and kind of going back to say, okay, what was he saying now? What, how is he adding to that to that argument? Um, Tower, keep keep going we're we're almost to the um imperatives which are uh something here 
Yeah, so something else, uh, verse 10, uh, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Uh, something that I found curious in just thinking through it is how does Christ die to sin? How did he die to sin? He never sinned, right? Hebrews uh, 4, um, I'm just going to flip there really quick. Um, Hebrews 4.15, I believe is the text um, that I have in mind here. Yeah, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so it, it's clear, and, and Peter mentions the same thing, that, that Christ was blameless, uh, spotless lamb. And so the question is, how, how is it that he dies to sin? And again, I think this is going back to the fact that, that he's our corporate head, the fact that he died to sin in that sin's power and death's power and reign in the old era, the old age that Paul talks about in chapter 5 with the two representatives, that there was a time where sin and death reigned. But Christ, not only living perfectly, but dying in our place for our sin, is now completely removed from that, that reign of sin, and therefore we are also removed from that reign of sin because we are united with him. And so that's one aspect of verse 10 that I thought was just interesting to think through. And then secondly, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Um, and I think I had mentioned this to, to you men uh, in, in our texting back and forth, but Christ didn't die to sin. He didn't die neutrally. He didn't die and rise, and that's it. But, but he now lives a life he, that he lives to God. And if that's true of our master who lives now unto God in that we see in the book of Hebrews, especially his high priestly ministry in heaven, then who are we to, to say that we are not to live for God in our life? So the very reality that, that Paul drives in here that not only did Christ die, but he's not neutral. He, he continuously lives for God, and so therefore we likewise ought to live our lives to God in every way, and, and Paul will build that, I think, through 11 through 14 for us. Yeah, Grant. Good, Josh. Nothing back to you, Tyler. Oh, That's right what we're talking about. I love it. And, and so this consider now that Grant was talking about, we are to verse 11. And, boy, what I love about this is, um, boy, even in 11, so you also <laughs> must consider yourself dead to sin. It hit me on how for lack of a better way of saying it, non-optional this is. This isn't an option for us to consider that we are uh, still slaves to sin. That is a done deal at justification. If you know the Lord Jesus, your justification is that thorough. You are now freed from, free from sin. I guess it's important to, to say that uh, rightly. Um, and this isn't an optional thing, and it's such an impacting it. it it's it's life impacting. Um, Grant, before Tyler goes in on that, could you talk about how you? I loved what you said there about that. This would really, if we that you plan on this week living differently because of having a greater understanding of this. And maybe being more active. It's not an actively instead of passively applying this. Right. I, I, I think it's just anytime you get better, 
clarity on your theology, things just fall into place more easily in, in how, I, at least for me, how I live, because I know what is actually required, and it's the right way. If we're just off a little bit, it's, it's going to be sort of going against the current if we're trying to live in a wrong way, um, thinking we're living from Scripture. But um, I think for this one, it was, I had smushed together what we will talk about in maybe chapter 7 with uh, sin still... Um, being in our members, well, even here, like presenting our members towards unrighteousness, that there's this battle with sin that takes place in our bodies because our bodies have not yet been transformed. We haven't been glorified, so we're still eagerly awaiting that. But there is this freedom from sin here now in the inner man. The inner man is free. So have I been considering myself free from the power and dominion of sin, that I don't have to sin? Um, it's not just this thing that I continually... I don't know, I think maybe it was Jared, at, at our discussion on Thursday, we were asking something about uh, his conversion or pre-Christ and post-Christ, and, and one of the key things that I remember him saying was he felt helpless to sin before before becoming a Christian. Yeah. There was just, he felt helpless to get out of it. And then afterwards, he felt like he did not have to go back there again. He felt yeah. free from it. And I was thinking, oftentimes, I just don't have a correct view of, the battle that I wage in sin, but also being free from it and being able to actually conquer and move forward in sanctification and, and in holiness. And so I was trying to think, how would that be different if on a daily basis I do consider myself like this command to be dead to sin, like actively consider myself in my mind, I am free from sin because I am united to Christ, not because of anything that I've done or any actions that I've taken, but because I am united to him. He is my head. I died with him. I'm going to rise, I, uh, rise with him, and I'm going to be glorified uh, with him with a new body um, one day. And so I think it just would change um, how I view sanctification if I'm actively considering myself dead to sin. It's not like this thing that has this, it's hooks in me anymore. There's yeah. temptation. The presence of it is very much there. Um, but I don't have to give in to it. I'm free from it. And and even MacArthur pointed out that there's encouragement when we do sin. That doesn't, we're, we're united to Christ. That doesn't suddenly snatch us out of God's hand because suddenly we sin, we're back under his dominion. No, we're free from it. There's the battle that Paul had in chapter 7, but that's great encouragement that if we confess our sins, you know, he will forgive them. Yeah, that's good. Please this week, but we must consider ourselves this way. We must. That's not an optional thing. And it will be very freeing and I think will bring great joy and sanctification, I think, will speed up in our lives. Don't you think, Tyler? Yeah, I do. Um, and just kind of to touch on that, even so consider yourselves. That you could, I think several translations will render this, even so continue to consider yourself. Yeah. And so it's an ongoing action that we do daily. It's an ongoing action we do every moment of the day. Every choice we make constantly as we live, we are to consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And, and as Grant was unashamed to continue to hammer in the propitiation in the earlier chapters, I am unashamed to hammer in the unity with Christ because Paul does not leave that out in verse 11. Consider yourselves. You must continue to consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God he doesn't end there he he can he adds the clause the prepositional phrase here in Christ Jesus this dead to sin and alive to God is only possible in our union with Christ 
And we have to consistently mentally engage in, with intentionality and totality every fiber of our being to consider ourselves dead to sin um, because that's ultimately where we're going to be, kind of going back to verse 4. Uh, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's that life that is to come in the future. So we live that out now. We can start living out the realities that we're going to ultimately share in because of our Lord's resurrection. He is our first fruit of the resurrection, so he guarantees our resurrection. But we are also first fruits as Christians of what is to come in the future. And so we actively can participate in that today. We don't have to wait until the future to, to in, in a some way, tangibly experience those realities. We, that's been brought into our present reality now. And yeah. so just like Grant was saying, it's something we, we can really consider to realize that we are dead to sin and we're free. We are, we are free to live to God obediently. Yeah, what makes this hard, MacArthur gave four reasons, and I thought these were really good, is one... We might not even realize this truth. I think there were is where Grant's exactly right to say, wait a second, now we do realize it. Right? Now we do. So Satan doesn't want us to know this. Number two. Satan doesn't want us to. Number three, it's not physically observable or verifiable that we are as dead as we are to sin there. And number four, we we know our own experience. This is the one that hit me the most. We know our own experience, and it doesn't feel like we're free. Does it to you? Doesn't it feel like that battle just rages every day? Selfishness or pride or whatever it is that's kind of after us. But even if it doesn't feel like it, we can't let our feelings trump the truth of God's word. We have and must consider ourselves dead to sin. Then he said, what will happen... Um, if we really do realize this, what will the results be? He gave four of those. We will have confidence in the midst of temptation. Grant uh, talked about that. The 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? That he's given us a way of escape. No temptation has seized us except what's common to man. But God is faithful. He's always faithful. He will give you that way of escape, and I think we'll be quicker to take it if we uh, really are taking this truth um, to heart. Number two, We'll have confidence that we can't see our sin out of our way out of God's grace. There isn't going to be a deal where we're worried like, oh, no, I wonder if I've done too much today that I am no longer in God's favor. That's never going to be the case. Number three, we'll have confidence in the face of death, right? That we will know going minutes before we go to eternity. We're not going to be like, ooh, I wonder again. That'll be an assurance there. Number four, we'll know that all that God will use all things for his glory and for our good. And, and what a great promise that is. And even sin, no license to sin, but even sin. Remember Joseph saying about his brothers, what you guys meant for evil, God meant for good. And what a great promise that is for us to hold on to. That it is never an excuse, it's never a license, but God is not going to be hindered. No plan of his will be thwarted. And he will use these things in an amazing way by disciplining us and make us more like our Savior. Josh, any? Yeah, are we going on to 12? Or? Let's do. Um, 
maybe I want to say this before we jump in there, but if you look at 11, there it starts in our thinking. You must consider yourselves something that's an active pondering or a reckoning. We have to get that first, and then that's going to work out into practice in 12 to 14, presenting our members for instruments either as unrighteousness or righteousness, but also... Um, with sanctification and the Bible's teaching about how we change, notice that it's never just a stop doing this, but there's always a start doing this. So there's a put off, mm. a put on, you'll hear in the New Testament oftentimes. But even in this passage, we not only consider ourselves dead to sin, but we have to replace that with considering ourselves alive to God in Christ. And so you've probably felt this in your own experience. You want to stop doing something. You can't change just by trying to avoid it, you know, trying to not think about it or not do something. You have to find something to replace it with. And, of course, um, biblically speaking, that's all empowered by the Holy Spirit who's helping us to change and to grow. But um, maybe with that we can go into 12. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Or? Yeah. Okay. No, I think that's good. Tower, any thoughts on that before... Isn't that, I mean, what a great thing that is. That Paul just doesn't tell us what not to do. He then replaces yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Put I don't off the old and put on the new. That was really well said. Yeah. I think you see that too in Ephesians 4. It's sort of in 25 to 29. but um, And you see it all throughout the Old Testament. We're called to put off the old man, our old sinful ways, and put on the new and that is through the power of the Spirit, and we have to consider what Christ has done for us, which is the engine of how we are to do those things. So it's, it's not just law, it's empowered by grace, um, and we know that we're in the realm of grace now. And a quick infomercial for Thursday. Don't you think, Greg, we're going to come a little bit to that where um, we are commanded to be sanctified, deliver him with all of his energy. So this isn't something we do on our own, I think, in verse 29, maybe there. And uh, so I think we're going to uh, follow up with that Thursday, Lord willing, if uh, you're hungry for Chick-fil-A and a little bit of the end of uh, Colossians 1. Josh? So, um, 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And um, I was listening to one pastor on this and he made this great point. What we do with our bodies is really indicative of what's going on in our souls. Mm -hmm. what, what we're thinking on, what we're storing up in our minds will play out with the use of our bodies here, the presenting them for instruments of unrighteousness or righteousness. And um, I think probably the big picture here is because we've been united to Christ, we're not to go on sinning anymore. We're done with that way of life. To, to sin now is to be inconsistent with who we are. And it makes no sense for us to keep on sinning. So, yeah, maybe I'll just pause there. No, that's <clears throat> good. Tower, is there a... Um, I, Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about how um, it were not to make a Christian doctrine is uh, not simply an intellectual hobby. Um, in seminary, is there a temptation? 
Yes, very much so. Yeah. Very, very is much it, so. Is it hard to, with all the incredible learning you're getting every day, is it hard to, to have enough time even to begin to apply all of this? How do you pull that off? Yeah, I, I don't know if I pull it off well sometimes, but it, it seems like there's so much front-loading with learning that starting to work that out in a, in a timely manner seems to be the, the more difficult aspect of it. It tends to... I was telling Victoria when the semester was coming to an end, I was like, I'm really ready for the summer just to reflect upon yeah. all that I've learned this first year just so I can start to really start to think through how do these things apply in my life and in our marriage and, and, and just in ministry in general. Good. So then kind of what you're saying, so I so what to consider, consider is is true and then to begin to apply it here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, kind of jumping into 13 here, this is just thinking through this more practically, uh, presenting our instruments or members of our body as instruments or tools uh, to God, either for righteousness or unrighteousness. If you think about it, a tool is only as good as it's meant to be used for, right? You don't take a hammer and try to start your car with it. If that's the case, then the hammer's not going to be of any value to you. Um, so a hammer is only good when you're using it in the way that a hammer is meant to be used. Likewise, our own bodies, our own members are only as useful when they're being used for the ends that they're meant to be used for, which is righteousness and glorifying God. And so just thinking through that and in learning academically or, or even on our own personal morning by morning uh, time with the Lord and his word, if we're not quickly seeking to apply the text, then we're not seeking to be useful tools to the Lord. Mm. Um, and, and so just kind of touching in on that on verse 13, I, I think if we're quick to do that and very intentional, we'll see a lot more fruit a lot more quickly in a way that I think will be more beneficial long-term because you start to develop godly habits uh, when you're pursuing to apply the text faithfully each time. Good. I would love, uh, Papa, if you or um, Greg, if you guys have something that uh, you would like that to add that comes to mind where you're not here grant anything um on 12 to 14 there as we get really down to the the meat of the matter where the rubber hits the road yeah i mean i've said that in the text but i think i'm still trying to i don't know i guess i need scott's atlanta braves hat to figure out how to think like him i don't know i keep trying to put his hat on to think like how can i you know, ask myself the right question or, or figure out how to apply this in, in everyday life. So I'll be interested to hear anybody's thoughts really on not presenting your members towards unrighteousness, but presenting it towards righteousness. What does that look like practically mm-hmm. uh, on a daily basis? When MacArthur's fourth, po- fourth point that was interesting to me, because that has to feel, it does to me anyway, it it feels like I'm not as free as I am, for sure. My, my experience doesn't match the truth of God's word um, in that way all the time. Um, Tyler, insights on, they, I know that's why we therefore have to let not sin reign because it's not our boss anymore. But can you talk to us how to practically go about and maybe it's stuff that your your pastoral guys have taught you to, um, you know, we, we feel like the, the battle's raging. Hmm. And it 
truly is, how do we convince ourselves to... Uh, yeah. Uh, well, one thing I'll just say regarding the battle raging, if there is no battle, if you're not fighting, as one pastor said, if there is no fight, there's no faith. Amen. If you're not actively fighting against sin, you're most likely not a believer. In fact, I would go as far as to say you're not. Um, again, it, Paul is grounding sanctification and justification. We see that with the linkage in verse 7 that we mentioned earlier, and even one that uh, Grant pointed out in verse 11, the so consider or reckon. Uh, it's the same term Paul used in uh, chapter 4 where he speaks of uh, God crediting righteousness to Abraham because of his faith. So we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God.